Good morning. If I ever retire, I know one thing I can't wait to do. At this time, my son Will, who is here, will start groaning because he knows what is next. If I ever retire, I want to be a tour guide, a docent, you know, a tour guide. If I would retire in Cincinnati, for example, I would take you on a walking tour to the Roebling Bridge. And I'd tell you how it was the largest bridge in the world when it opened immediately after the Civil War. And I'd also tell you it served as a prototype for the most famous bridge in the United States, the Brooklyn Bridge in New York City. Well, I'd take you on another walking tour in Cincinnati, and I'd take you to the Omni, uh, to the Omni Netherland building. You know, a great and huge building which served as the prototype of the Empire State Building in New York City. And if you're a baseball fan, and none of you remember the 1939 World Series, but it was there that Lou Gehrig, the great star of the New York Yankees, fell down the steps of the Omni Netherland. 1939, Reds versus the New York Yankees, and everyone knew from that point on, without doubt, he had what would be called Lou Gehrig's disease. Well, today I'd like to hone my tour guide skills by taking you on a tour of a fabulous city, a city far greater than Paris, a city far greater than London, and a city far greater than our own Queen City here in Cincinnati. And here is a picture of that city. It's the New Jerusalem. It's 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. And if you are a Christian, it is your eternal home. Today, in chapters 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation, I'd like to take you on a 12-stop tour of the New Jerusalem. So if you want to hop on the bus right now, you get on the bus, we're going to take you on a 12-stop tour. We'll push through some stops. Uh, we'll linger at others. Uh, but this is your eternal home, and you're not going to believe what you see. And if you think that your ultimate hope is in this world, you are sorely disappointed. Now this city, as we're going to our first stop, you need to know is, is holy. There's no sin whatsoever in this city. No muggers, no murderers, no thugs. It's holy. It's also beautiful beyond comprehension. You may go down to the Cincinnati Zoo and see the redbuds or the dogwoods or the tulips just coming up in brilliant color, but you see no color whatsoever until you've come to this place. And the first thing that happens when you enter the city, early in Revelation 21, the hands of God Almighty wipe the tears away from your eyes. And if Jesus Christ is wiping the tears away from your eyes, every person sees up close and personal the nail prints in his hand. For the God who comforts you is a God who has also suffered. And I don't know about you, but I could not worship a God who did not suffer given the world that we live in. 
Well, we're at our first stop. We'll probably linger a bit here because it's really a good one. And that is the New Jerusalem's glory and brilliance. Verse 11, it shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The city sparkles like a diamond. It puts on a dazzling display of God's glorious light, the likes of which Times Square in New York City has never seen. Remember, precious stones like jaspers are reflectors. By themselves, they give off no light. But in this city, city, the radiance of God's glory uh, emanates from the city and it goes through them and the city looks like the crown jewel of God's cosmos. And it is here where your ultimate hope resides. Now did you notice? The city shines with the glory of God. On the rarest of occasions in Old Testament times, the glory of God would visibly appear. It appeared in the Holy of Holies in a Jewish tabernacle, a perfectly cubed room of gold. It was, you know, like this. And in that room, only one priest once a year could go into that room. If anyone else went into that room, the glory, the visible glory of God would strike that person dead because our human bodies were not equipped on this earth to see the visible glory of God that was there. Another time in the Old Testament when Solomon dedicated his temple, the visible glory of God came down and the priests could not even minister in the temple because the glory was there. Everyone was on their face. Later, the visible glory of God was taken up out of the temple and it slowly moved away and it left the temple for 600 years. It was not seen or experienced again until a particular night when shepherds were watching their flocks at night and the glory of God shone around them and they were terrified and the angels sang glory, glory, glory to God Almighty and it was Christmas the day of the birth of our Savior, when the glory returned. All this to say, when the new Jerusalem comes down to the new earth, all of us will see the visible glory of God and will live to tell the story. Second stop. The new Jerusalem's wall and gates, verse 12 and 13. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The angels in the great high walls suggest the great security of the city. No need to hire ADT. No need to hire Honeywell. No more intrusive pat-downs by TSA agents. You will be perfectly safe for all eternity. For what enemy could scale a 1,400 mile high wall? What enemy could overpower the guardian angels of the gates? Absolutely no one. The 12 gate towers stand three on a side and they promise great freedom of access. You can go in and out, in and out, at whatever time 
there's no curfew, no need for a passport, because it is your eternal home. And it's the last thing that the Bible tells you before it's completed. Stop three, the New Jerusalem's foundation stones. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, on, on, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lord, of the Lamb, which is Jesus Christ. So what's the point of the foundation stones? Isn't it this? God makes the New Jerusalem solid, stable, unshakable. It's permanent. It cannot be moved or destroyed. And by the way, in the Old Testament, Abraham, according to Hebrews, longed to see this city. Abraham dwelled in a land of tents, but Abraham longed for a city with foundations, this city whose builder and maker is God. The New Jerusalem is that city, and I ask you, like Abraham, do you long to see it? Stop number four will blow you away. The New Jerusalem city measured. The city was laid out like a square. As long as it was wide, he, an angel, measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. If these measures are merely figurative, know that the city, know that the place that God prepares for you is unbelievably spacious, all kinds of room. But what if the stadium measurement is literal? That means it would be 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. That's the literal measurement. I mean, there's, there's a possibility, especially since the angels said that these are the measurements known to men. 1,400 miles from here takes us where? 1,400 miles west takes us all the way to Nevada. 14,000 miles from here takes us into the Gulf of Mexico. That's 2 million square miles. 15,000 times larger than London. 10 times larger than France. Much larger than India. And that's only the ground level. If every story, so to speak, were 12 feet high, that would be 60 thousand stories. Billions of square miles. Enough for every person, billions of people, to have many square miles dedicated to their dwelling place, if you take it literally. You know, when Jesus Christ said, I go to prepare a place for you, of this I'm sure. He's not just preparing a studio apartment for you. Amazing. Just amazing. Number five, the New Jerusalem's walls measured. He, the angel, measured its wall, and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall measures 72 yards thick. In ancient times when this was written, the security of a city was built on the, on the height and width of its walls. No battering ram could knock over a 72-yard thick wall. 
Nothing from the outside could penetrate in, but something from the inside could penetrate out. And we'll talk about that in just a second. You know, 72 yards thick, in southern Arizona where I live, and I hate to say this, but we had 120 straight days that were between 70 and 75 in the winter. Whew. And I was so thrilled to see rain when I got off the plane in Dayton. But I went to a uh, Titan Missile Museum, uh, these old Titan Missiles Cold War, and they had 11 feet thick walls to prepare for radiation that might happen if a bomb from Russia years ago would hit it. 11 feet thick. These are how wide? 72 yards wide. Stop number six, building materials for the walls, city, foundation, gates, and streets of the New Jerusalem. Briefly put, what we supremely value on earth are just the common building materials of the New Jerusalem. Gold, precious stones, pearls, they're just merely the common building materials of this place. In terms of U.S. dollars, our $17 trillion debt couldn't even pay for a major street of gold in the city of this place. That's how expensive it is. Let's examine the walls first. The wall was made of jasper. So what could penetrate this jasper wall 72 yards wide? Only one thing. The answer is the brilliant light of God's glory. Remember, jasper is a transparent stone, much like what we would call a diamond. And in the New Jerusalem, as we shall shortly, shortly see, the light of God's glory fills this place. And the light of God's glory penetrates through the walls that can be seen in the city like a dazzling star, the crown jewel of God's cosmos. Now the city, you remember, is 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles. By 1,400 miles, the city of pure gold is as clear as glass. On earth last Friday, gold closed at what amount? I think it was around $1,300 an ounce. But in heaven, gold paves the very streets of the place. I love the foundation stones. On earth, who decorates foundation stones? They're, they're foundational. They're, they're not ornamental in any way. They're functional. But in the New Jerusalem, God even decorates the foundation stones with every kind of precious stone, with emeralds, with sapphires, with amethysts, and colors beyond imagination. And the 12 gates? The 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made out of a single pearl. These won't be pearls formed by some giant oyster. These pearls are formed by the very hand of God. If we just take this symbolically, we say, who can calculate the worth of the new Jerusalem? You know what took God to construct this earth six days and he rested? Jesus said he was going to prepare a place for us. He's been about the business of this place for 2,000 years. Wonder what in the world it's going to look like when it's finished. Now, 
Symbolically, it could be that these pearls, but you know, these pearls are big. You say, I don't believe any of this stuff. You know, this, this large pearl stuff, I don't think so. Well, did you read a couple years ago in the Washington Post or our Reuters News Service, it talked about some astronomers in Australia, and I also think the astronomy team in southern Arizona at Kitt Peak discovered in the Milky Way galaxy, our galaxy, a planet five times bigger than Earth, and all it is is a diamond. It's a diamond planet. I mean, talk about cosmic bling. God has just put cosmic bling out there five times as big as the earth. And I say if God can create a diamond five times as large as the earth, then why can't God carve 12 gates for the new Jerusalem out of 12 giant pearls? I mean, how big is your God anyway? Number seven, seventh stop, New Jerusalem's temple. I, that is John, did not see a temple in the city. Did not see a temple in the city. Every great city had a temple because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Every ancient world-class city featured its temple. In Athens, it was the Parthenon. In Ephesus, it was the temple to Artemis, which was one of the seven great wonders of the world. But the New Jerusalem will not have a temple. And why should there be a temple? For every single believer in Jesus Christ will have access, direct access to God. But let me make sure you're putting together uh, two plus two here. In the Bible, there are only two perfect cubes. Two perfect cubes. In the Old Testament, the perfect cube is the Holy of Holies. You know, length, width, height, all the same. And it's outfitted in gold, and it was the place on earth where God's glory resided to the fullest extent. In the New Testament, there's a perfect cube, and that is the New Jerusalem. 1400 by 1400 by 1400. And God Almighty fills the place, and it is the place in the cosmos where God's glory and God's person is most fully revealed. And both are decked out in gold. The Old Testament points to your eternal home. Number eight, we'll just stop at quickly, push right through the New Jerusalem's light. Actually, a family-owned business has all the light in this city. I call it the Father and Lamb Power and Light Company. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb, Jesus Christ, is its lamp. And the lamb is its lamp. Do you remember when Jesus walked the earth that he said, I am the light of the world? Well, every pastor talks about that and says it's just figurative. You know, Jesus is this light. He lights our path. He shows us the way to go. Uh, because he can give light and insight, we understand how to live this life, and, and we understand, th understand things about it that we otherwise would not know. But in this city, it's a literal light. I mean, the light of God the Father, light of Jesus, light the whole place. He's not only a light spiritually, he is the light of our future home, the New Jerusalem. Number nine, the New Jerusalem's gates never shut. 
On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. In ancient cities, why did they shut their gates? They shut their gates at night so as to protect the city. So no enemy army could get in, so no spies could get in. So, so no one who had ill intent for anyone in that city could get in. They would shut the gates. But this city will be completely safe. The gates will always be open. No curfew. No night. You can go in and out. Verse 27 reads, Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful and deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now about, all, about this time, the Sierra Club members in this place are getting a little upset. I mean, they would say, Hey, no offense, God, this is a wonderful place, but... Is all you have planned for this place uh, pearls, gold, sapphires, foundation stones, you know, solid objects? No offense, God, but do you have any plans to put any plants in this place? You know, any, any water, any, any vegetation, or is this just stones and gold and pearls? Well, it's as if God responds, don't worry. You won't need to leave the New Jerusalem to find the beauty of, of water and trees and plants and fruit. Stop number 10. The New Jerusalem's river, chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. So what does this river symbolize as it flows from the throne of God? Certainly the water of life symbolizes the following, at least as water meets our basic physical needs, satisf satisfies our physical thirst, so God for all eternity will quench his children's needs and will give us everything we need to live life eternally. But I say, why can't we drink the water? We're not ghosts in heaven. We have a physical resurrected body because our bodies are patterned after Jesus Christ's body and he ate and drank after the resurrection. Now, there's always a lot of fog at the 11th stop. I can't clear it up. I can just say the fog is rolling in now and I'll do the best I can. Number 11, the New Jerusalem's tree as well as its fruit and leaves. And the text reads, And on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Wow, we haven't seen that since when? Genesis 1 and 2. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. I mean, it's a heavenly fruit of the month club. And the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. What does that mean? Well, the fog is coming in. Now, you remember the tree of life, don't you? Genesis 1 and 2, the tree of life. The final two chapters in the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, the tree of life. But what role does water, trees, fruit, and healing leaves play? 
Again, most believers understand there's at least something symbolic going here because water, fruit, and medicine or healing leaves convey that God will meet all our needs, take care of everything we need, all the sustenance we need. We can live forever. Isn't it true on earth if you have water, food, and healing medicine, you live? Well, in eternity, you have water, food, healing, medicine, so to speak, and you live. You have eternal life. But it might mean more. For after all, in Revelation 2-7, Jesus promised believers that we would eat from what? The tree of life that has fruit and a different fruit every month. You know, Jesus Christ ate. I mean, I love to eat on this earth. Do you love to eat on this earth? Came back to Cincinnati, and where is the first place I stopped to eat? Skyline. Skyline. Go to spring training at Goodyear in Arizona, walk in the stadium, I smell something. What is it? Skyline. You know, so I had Skyline. Last night to celebrate, I go out to another family famous place here, and that's a Montgomery Inn, and we loved it. And after the service today, I think we're going to the original Pancake House, you know just to make sure I have my carb intake for the whole week. But you know, if you love to eat on earth, why, don't, why wouldn't you love to eat in heaven? Can you imagine what it would be? Tree of life, 12 different kinds of fruit, a different one. I wonder what in the world's going to taste like. We have bodies that can actually eat. But what about those healing leaves? There's no disease up there. That's a good question. Again, it's foggy, but let me at least say this. The word heal is not probably the best translation. I'm guessing that these leaves have some life-enhancing or enriching property for all of us to freely access. One final stop. Final stop in the Bible. Final stop on this tour. The highlight of heaven. Do you know what the highlight of heaven is? I almost feel like taking my shoes off because we are on holy ground. And this is the way the Bible ends. Stop 12. God's throne, God's servants, God's face. So where does our tour end? At the three greatest attractions of heaven. First, it ends with us at the throne of God and of the Lamb. We come to the epicenter of power and authority and rule for all eternity. The throne of God, elsewhere in Revelation, we read that God allows us, believers in Jesus Christ, to sit on the throne with Jesus Christ as well. What kind of a hope is that? It's unbelievable. Second, it ends, the Bible ends, this tour ends with us serving God. We will do forever what God tells us we can do. We will have all the resources, all the power, all the freedom, and all the joy to accomplish what he has asked us to do. And it will be wonderful. But it ends with something even greater. For the greatest thing about heaven is not the jewels, the sapphires, the emeralds, the, the large pearls. The greatest thing about heaven is not the amount of money from our perspective that's invested in it, like just streets of, of, of gold and, and clear as glass. That's not the greatest thing about heaven. 
Nor is the greatest thing about heaven seeing your loved ones that have gone on before, as great as that is. So at the end of it all, at the end of this tour, what is the chief attraction of heaven? For all of us, for all time, it will be this. We shall see God. We shall see the face of God, whatever that means, and we will live to tell the story. In the Old Testament, Moses begged God, let me see your face. But God said, no man can see my face and live. But in the New Jerusalem, in our resurrected body, which is similar to Jesus Christ's body, in the place that God has prepared for us, the greatest thing we have to look forward is to gaze into the face of God, see the brilliance and wonder of who He is, comprehend that, and live to tell the story eternally. Well, we finished our tour, our 12-stop tour of the New Jerusalem, our eternal home, and some Christians here might say, well, you know, if I think about my eternal home a lot, if I become so heavenly-minded, I will be of a very little earthly good. But it was C.S. Lewis, the great apologist, who, who said, those people who make the greatest difference for God on earth are the ones who have the greatest hope in heaven and understand truly where they are going for, how the story ends, and are in awe of what God has provided for them then and now. We've reached the end of the Bible, whether you know it or not. There's only three things left in the Bible of substance. When you finish this, there's three things left. Jesus tells us that he's coming again. Jesus warns us, or warns people, that they need to respond to the words that are written because there are consequences of people don't respond. And the Bible gives its final invitation. Over and over it says, come, come, come. You can't miss the word as it closed. The spirit and the bride say, come. God says, come. Come and receive the water of life, which is symbolic, you know, for eternal life. I mean, so how in the world do you come and how in the world do you receive? I mean, it's not hard to, to remember. I think most of you have heard around here that your sin is a barrier between you and God. Now, this is a Bible, and so it's really a bad example to use as sin. But let's imagine this is your sin, and this is you. Your sin is here, and God is here. And this is a barrier between you and God. The issue is not turning your life around. The issue is not how you turn over a new leaf. Because this is still there as a barrier between yourself and God. If you could do something to eliminate this, you could be your own Savior. But you're not your own Savior. Because there comes that time when Jesus Christ came. And as you celebrated last week, he comes to a cross. And the Bible says, you know, all we like sheep, we've gone astray, we've turned every last one of us to our own way, and God has laid on him the crushing iniquity of us all. Jesus on that cross proclaims, it is finished, a banking term, paid in full, this sin which was a barrier between you. He takes on himself, he removes, so the only thing left to do is come. There's no barrier. 
Come. Come to Christ. Believe in the death of his son on your behalf. Commit yourself to follow in his ways as he, in strength, as he strengthens you to do. So we came to the end of our tour, not only the 12-stop tour, but the end of the Bible. And Jesus says, come. So right now I'd like to give you that opportunity to come. All I'll do is pray a prayer. If you'd like to do something like that, if it, if it expresses the desire of your heart, just follow after me. I'll ask for nothing else. Ben might, but I won't. Let's pray. Father, ultimately our hope is in you. And someday this place is not going to be here. It's going to be changed dramatically. We are going to be in a new Jerusalem with a new earth, and we're going to be there for all eternity doing what you planned for us to do. But right now, Lord, for those who would like to come, as God concludes his Bible by saying come, and, like, and by coming you'd say something like this, Dear God, um, I've been running for you from you. Now I wish to come to you. And I believe that your son, Jesus Christ, is my Savior. And he took care of the sin that separated me from you when he died on a cross. And Lord, there's nothing between us now, so I come in faith, believe in him. May you save me, may you give me eternal life, and may heaven be my eternal home. In Christ's name, amen.